Good morning. This morning we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, which is really what we're looking at today is part two of Colin's sermon from last week. And so you'll recall that Jesus was discussing the impending judgment that necessarily comes for those who do not embrace the true Messiah. And though this Messiah comes to cast judgment on the earth, he himself promises to undergo a baptism of judgment on behalf of his people. And these two realities, the reality of judgment and the offer of hope for salvation in that Messiah, urge us, they point us to the urgent need to settle with our accuser, to stand before God justified through the righteousness of Jesus given to us by faith. And so Jesus urges sinners to be reconciled to God now, for they will perish if they wait until the day of judgment. It's the kind of language, as Colin pointed out last week, that skeptics and Jesus seminar scholars would not attribute to Jesus because it's just it's too harsh, right? It's too exclusive. And yet, lest we think that kind of language, that language of sin and judgment, is as edgy as Jesus gets, he ups the ante this week. And so we come to Luke 13 this morning. As we read, young Christians and students in the room, see if you can figure out, if you can pick out what kind of comparison the crowds are trying to make in these verses. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, this morning we proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as servants for his sake. Would you shine in our hearts even now, to give us the light of the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus, and may we be transformed more and more into his image in our whole person. We give you thanks for the fruit that your word bears. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, by now, you may have come to know that I love stories. I I, I love 
how they expose our deepest fears and they expose our greatest dreams. I love how they stoke our imaginations for other worlds. And I also love how stories, at least the good ones, help us to see our own place in that greatest of stories, the unfolding drama of redemption. And few stories capture my own imagination in that regard, like the Harry Potter series. And perhaps I'm a product of my own time in that regard. I was in high school when the the books in the latter half of the series began to be released, and so I was just hooked. I was a huge fan. I was the kind of fan who would stand in line at midnight for the release of every new book. Maybe some of you can identify with that. And so it was with the last release in the series entitled Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. This book masterfully brought together so many themes and storylines from throughout the series that culminated in one of the most redemptive fiction stories that that I've ever encountered. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay, because I'm going to tell you a story in just a moment. But before I do, I need to let you know, I don't think I'm giving any spoilers away. I've been known to do that for a few of our RYF students. But even if I am, I think that the statute of limitations on such things has run out. And if you haven't read the books by now, then that's probably your fault. In The Deathly Hallows, Harry Potter is seeking to put an end to the most evil wizard who has ever lived. And in his quest to do this, he comes across a tale of some powerful weapons, The Deathly Hallows. It's a children's tale. Like Hansel and Gretel or The Three Little Pigs, it's supposed to convey some kernel of truth or some moral warning. And it goes like this. There were once three brothers who were traveling along a lonely road at twilight. And they came to a river too treacherous to pass, but being learned in the magical arts, the three brothers simply waved their wands and made a bridge. Before they could cross, however, they found their path blocked by a hooded figure. It was death, and he felt cheated because travelers usually drowned in the river. But death was cunning, and he told the brothers that each of them had earned a prize for being clever enough to evade him. The oldest brother asked for a wand more powerful than anything in existence, and so death fashioned him a wand from a tree nearby. The second brother asked for the power to recall loved ones from the grave, and so death plucked a stone from the river and offered it to him. The third brother, a humble man, asked for something that would allow him to go forth from that place without being followed by death. And so death reluctantly handed over to him his own cloak of invisibility. Now the first brother became drunk with power and he killed a wizard with whom he once quarreled. And yet seeing such power, the men of that village came and killed him in his sleep, and so death claimed the first brother. The second brother recalled his lost fiancée from death, and she appeared before him. 
though she was cold, for she did not belong in the mortal world. And driven mad with longing, the second brother took his own life in order to join her. As for the third brother, death searched for many years but could not find him. Only when he attained an old age did the third brother shed his cloak of invisibility and he greeted death as an old friend, departing this life as equals. So this theme of evading or avoiding death becomes one that Harry Potter himself takes some interest in. His own parents had died an unjust and untimely death at the hand of the very wizard that he was now fighting. And interestingly, on their graves is written an inscription about death. Perhaps you recognize it from the pen of the Apostle Paul. It's this. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And indeed, throughout Scripture, death is called an enemy. It's a result of the fall, a curse for man's disobedience and the spoils of the serpent's victory in the garden. It's the price that Cain, in his anger, forces upon his brother Abel when he commits the first murder. It's the chasm into which Korah and his people fall when they rebel in the wilderness against God's chosen servant. And it's the sting of sin for David when the child born to his mistress dies an untimely death. It's what every person on the face of the earth knows he deserves because of his moral failure to keep God's commands at least according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. And it's the one thing that we are all scared of. The one thing that we are all trying to evade. Don't get me wrong, I am not saying that we are all afraid to die. But we are all afraid at some point at what death can do. What it brings with it. And what it takes from us. Because death brings with it judgment. And it takes from us the things that we most desire. Maybe you've already experienced this. You've tasted the untimely death of a loved one. You've been given a diagnosis that feels to you like a sentence of death. Or you've walked through what the psalmist calls the valley of the shadow of death because of the circumstances in your life. And things are so dark that you you consider yourself among the walking dead. You're just getting from place to place and day to day with no hope of feeling alive again. On the other hand, maybe some of us have not really reckoned with death. Maybe we are young or strong or wealthy, and we think that those things give us immunity from considering what, what greater good or what higher danger might await us in the life to come. But even if that's the case, we are all trying to evade death, and more specifically, the judgment and loss that come with it. And given Jesus' stern warning in our passage from last week, it seems appropriate that he ups the ante by exposing our feeble attempts to evade death 
by showing us that there is only one refuge from that coming judgment that we will all face in death. I mean, this is indeed what Jesus tells the crowds when they respond to his call to settle with their accuser. Notice how the crowd responds. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Jesus has just announced impending judgment and the need to settle with one's accuser, with the God of the universe. And what do the people do? They point their finger in comparison. What about those Galileans? What about their gruesome and tragic death? Now, the people here are referring to the cruelty of Pilate, who apparently had killed some Galileans as they were approaching the temple to worship. Probably during the feast of Passover, when the lady would come to offer their own sacrifices. But let's just be clear about how cruel and tragic this death really is. This is the government slaughtering worshipers on their way into church. I mean, Pilate apparently had some political interest in taking out these Galileans. Maybe they were part of some faction of his opponents. And the manner in which he does so sends a message. He kills them in the act of worshiping. And so surely these Galileans were more deserving of judgment and death than the people that Jesus was addressing. We know what they're getting at, don't we? Because it's the same kind of refuge that we often seek when trying to escape judgment. We point our fingers in comparison, seeking refuge in being better than I'm I'm amazed as we're in college admission season about how much this particular dynamic affects our culture. I mean, surely you heard this week the story of over 50 people implicated and involved in the nationwide college admission scandal where the rich and famous parents bribed and bought and cheated to get their children into the universities for which they were not granted admission. Why? Why? Why would you take that risk? Because when you are rich and powerful and middle-aged, the only thing that you have to offer at the altar of comparison is your own children and their so-called success. And if you think that kind of comparison, that kind of dynamic, doesn't affect our culture here in East Dallas, consider this. We are busier than we have ever been. And there are so many good things that we're busy doing. But how much of our busyness is driven by this impulse to make our families seem more worthy in the eyes of our communities? To earn our place free of judgment among those whom we consider to be our personal accusers. Like the crowds in Luke 13, we all feel the tug of this impulse to point our fingers in comparison. But the theological question remains, doesn't it? What is the relationship 
between suffering and death and our own sinfulness. So the people here are addressing Jesus' claim by appealing to a very ancient statute in Israel, the retribution principle. It's the Jewish conception of the administration of God's judgment, His justice. And its basic premise is that there is a correlation between righteousness and prosperity and between wickedness and suffering. Now, don't don't get me wrong. This is not the same thing as the modern prosperity gospel. In, In fact, it's a common theme in the Bible's wisdom literature. Consider a prominent theme in the Psalms. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Their sin drives them to the grave. We'll sing that later today. There is a biblical expectation of judgment for disobedience. So, what did the crowds get wrong? Let's look to Jesus' response. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice that Jesus doesn't need anyone to tell him what the crowds are trying to do. He knows their hearts. He knows what they're trying to do. As we've seen, they're trying to evade death, so great a judgment, by pointing their fingers in false comparison. But Jesus does something remarkable. He gives them a true one. He says, don't think that any of these people were worse sinners than anyone else. And then, instead of giving them therapeutic platitudes about tragedies happening in a broken world and everything happening for a reason, he raises the stakes. He tells them, unless you repent, your death will be just as tragic. What could he mean? He means that there is coming a death a great judgment that will be just as heinous and even more tragic than untimely departure from this life. And the only refuge from it, the only way to avoid this second death, as Scripture calls it, is the way of repentance. Of course, at its core, repentance is about a change in who or what you trust To settle your account with your accuser. In the text that Matthew read to us earlier from Isaiah 28, Judah's leaders trusted in Egypt for protection against Assyria. Just as years earlier, the wicked king Ahaz had trusted in Assyria to provide refuge from his enemies. And Isaiah calls this a covenant with death. Judah's leaders had made lies and political alliances their refuge rather than trusting the Lord, and this is what they'd been called to do. But but in so doing this, they made friends with death. 
Yet God has always made clear there is only one refuge from the coming judgment we will all face in death. And it's not your job. It's not your parenting. It's not your grades. It's not the college that your kids get into. It's not how many likes or shares that you get online. All of those are false comparisons. Instead, herein lies the answer to our theological question. What is the relationship between sin and suffering and death? Or we could ask it a little more personally like these people do. How do we avoid death? What it brings with us. What, what it brings with it and what it takes from us. Do we avoid it by befriending it through trust in false saviors? No. Only by the way of repentance, which is a future-oriented way. So throughout the Bible's wisdom literature, there is also a theme uh, of the righteous sufferer and his future, which counterbalances this expectation of judgment for sinners that we pointed out a moment ago. In other words, while these books acknowledge judgment for sin, they also acknowledge a delay in that judgment pointing to really what seems to be prosperity for sinners. Consider Proverbs 24, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, And be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Notice that passage assumes that evildoers may prosper for a time. Otherwise, why should any of us be envious of them? But ultimately, they have no future. Their lamps will be put out. Interestingly, when Jesus speaks later of the coming of the kingdom, he tells the disciples a parable about ten virgins, five of whom had not prepared their lamps for the bridegroom's impending arrival, and so were left out of the marriage feast because they could find no oil to light their lamps. But the wise, they kept their lamps trimmed, and being ready for the bridegroom's coming, they went in with him to the feast. These wise women were prepared because they set their hope on the return of the bridegroom. And therefore they escaped the worst death imaginable. Eternal separation from the bridegroom. When the other virgins came knocking on the door asking for admission to the feast... They heard the most frightening words that anyone can ever hear. I do not know you. This parable illustrates that biblical hope in suffering is future oriented. It's a hope that fears not the first death, our departure from this life, but rather fears the second death and the God who justly brings it. And therefore, it is a hope that is characterized by repentance. Not a mere cleaning yourself up in comparison to your neighbors, but a complete change of orientation toward that final vindication on the last day. Jesus says, 
these people weren't any worse sinners than any of the rest of you. And neither were those who died tragically at Siloam when the tower of Siloam fell on them. In fact, he says, unless you change your orientation from seeking to evade the first death and what it brings with it, then you will die tragically at the second death at the judgment seat of God. This is the way of repentance. And it is not in false comparison to others. But the good news is this. That just as false comparison is the enemy of repentance, true repentance is the enemy of death. Jesus illustrates such repentance, as he often does, by a parable. And we we may want to ask, what then is repentance? How do I do it? Give me a list of things to do to repent, and I'll do it. But Jesus here engages our imaginations with this image of fruitfulness. He tells the story of a vineyard owner who is ready to cut down a fruitless fig tree because it's taking up soil and space in his vineyard. In ancient Palestine, and even today, fruit trees were planted in vineyards, establishing kind of a symbiotic relationship between the tree and the vine. And the idea was that if a vineyard owner wanted a hint of some flavor to the plants in his vineyard, uh, he would plant a fruit tree there, subtly flavoring his crop, and it would also yield for him good fruit. But this tree, instead of bearing fruit and providing hints of flavor to the plants around it, has no fruit and indeed is using up the ground, taking up precious nutrients from the other plants. This is the picture of fruitlessness. And it's a common picture in ancient Israel, an agricultural society. And for Jesus, fruitlessness is the evidence that true repentance has not taken place. But notice what happens next. The vine dresser intercedes. I mentioned that this vineyard imagery is common in ancient Israel. In fact, it shows up all over first century Jewish literature. But in Jewish accounts where this kind of vine vineyard imagery appears, either such a request was denied or the yield of fruit was too small to be considered worth anything and so the tree would be immediately cut down. The vine dresser's successful intercession here is distinct among first century literature. It's No mistake, by the way, because Jesus has already told the people that he has a baptism to undergo, a baptism of judgment on behalf of his people. But here it highlights the patience and mercy of God because of Jesus, our intercessor. To be sure, the vineyard owner is displeased with the fruitlessness of the tree, and yet Because of the tender care and the pleas of the vine dresser, he is willing to delay cutting it down. He's patient. He's not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Rather, he's patient, not wishing that his people should perish, but that they should come to repentance. And notice what 
it is that will indicate such a repentance. It's fruitfulness. I'm not a big fan of pineapple. It wasn't a common fruit in my house growing up, and if it did surface, it would have been a canned version of the real thing. Around here, it's really tough to get good pineapple, as you know, and so I, I, I never really bothered. But not long after Alicia and I moved to Florida, a family from our church invited us over for dinner, and so we came wondering what kind of local fare we were going to taste for the first time. We're food people, and so we're pretty excited about that kind of thing, if you ever want to invite us over for dinner. (laughs) But I'll never forget this particular meal. It was a beautiful meal. I am sure that it was. The only problem is, I don't remember what it was, except for one element, fresh grilled pineapple. It was one of the most delicious things I have ever tasted. And to this day, I haven't had a pineapple to match it. Now, why was that particular pineapple so appealing to me when I've spent my entire life hating pineapple? Because it was the real thing. You might say it was the truest pineapple that I have ever had. You see, true repentance yields good fruit. Notice, it's not the other way around. A pineapple is not a good pineapple because it first looks and tastes like one. No, it must be planted in the right soil. And it must be frequently watered, which is probably why pineapples struggle here in North Texas. It must be successfully rooted And then it will start to grow. And so too with true repentance. It is an inward act of God that produces in us good fruit. Our shorter catechism contains a helpful definition of this. It's a little wordy, but it's helpful. It says that repentance unto life is a saving grace. Whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ turns from his sin unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's a gracious gift from God by the mercy of Christ which produces in us a change in orientation and therefore bears the fruit of repentance. The Puritans had a great way of talking about the fruit of obedience that flows from repentance. They said it consists in two things, two big theological terms that are much easier to explain than they are to say, mortification and vivification. Mortification, that putting to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those thoughts and intentions and actions which are harmful to the bearing of fruit in our lives. As the greatest of Puritans, John Owen said, always be killing sin or sin will always be killing you. Uproot it. Don't just mow over the weeds. Strike at the heart of it through intentional confession of sin and plea for pardon. Through continued repentance throughout our lives. Do you know this was Martin Martin Luther's first point in his 95 Theses? 
that over against the Roman doctrine and practice at the time of penance, which would tend to give people a false sense of security and safety based on outward actions, that the entire orientation of the Christian life is one of repentance, one that is oriented toward that final vindication on the last day. It's an inward disposition, not merely an outward right. So true repentance is marked by continuing to mortify the flesh by the grace of God in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's also marked by vivification, a cultivating or bringing to life the new nature that we have received in Jesus. We must not only seek to put sin to death, but also to do the will of God. Putting on, as the Apostle Paul says, the new self which is being renewed after the image of its creator. It's taking up the cross of Jesus as he calls us to follow him. It's cultivating habits that characterize one who has been buried and then raised with Christ. And one of those is spread before us even now. The Lord's table is an act of both mortification and vivification. It's mortification because by it we put to death the tastes that we have for lesser saviors, for lesser meals, lesser means of satisfaction. And it's vivification because in the invitation to come and dine, we are invited to come and find in Jesus alone our source of strength and comfort, and peace, and life. But there are other habits that characterize true repentance, habits of grace, we might call them. In Colossians 3, Paul says, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Be characterized by the peace of Christ through forgiveness toward one another. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Know it. Savor it. And then I love how he ends in that passage in Colossians 3. He says, and sing to one another. Sing to one another. Sing together. Sing to God, develop a habit of praise, a catalog of songs and hymns and spiritual songs which help to direct your gaze heavenward. That's an act of vivification. I must admit that even uh, as a, a preacher and a lover of the written word, one of my favorite moments in our liturgy every communion Sunday is after we've taken communion together and We've returned to our seats, and the musicians begin to build. And it's no accident that they're usually building towards some triumphant climax, and then we rise together and sing, proclaiming our renewed hope to one another with a beautiful liveliness. Our worship together is an act of vivification. And so mortification and vivification, these are fruits of true repentance and they are the enemies of death. 
Jesus' parable makes clear that unless we bear the fruit of true repentance, though God is patient, we will one day be cut off. We will one day come to meet death, and what then will be our defense? Will we take refuge in our own strength or in our relative goodness? Will we boast in the college that we got into or the money that we made? Will we boast that we were on the right side of various historical or political controversies? Will we boast in our own engagement in social justice or in our evangelistic fervor? You see, lesser saviors can be good things. And yet none of them alone can give us the power to evade and even to conquer death, what it brings with it, and what it takes from us. Only true repentance, trust in Jesus for our vindication before the Father can do that. And such repentance always bears fruit. And so may the Lord increase our fruit in keeping with repentance as we seek Him together. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, we thank you for your free offer of repentance through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And may we not delay even now in seeking the fruit of true repentance in Him. And may we set aside those false saviors to which we have entrusted ourselves even if we don't realize it, even if we do it only functionally. Would you help us to do this? And as we approach your table even now, may we heed the invitation to come and dine and to find in you our source of life and strength and refuge. In Jesus' name, amen.